a number of years ago, I remember watching a short video. I, I've gone looking for it. I can't find it since. And I believe the video was promoting uh, Christianity Explored, which we've offered here, and Lord willing, we'll do so again. Though it was a short video, it was powerful. And what they did is they took to the streets of London with a camera and a microphone, and they stopped people in the streets, and they asked uh, random people the following. If you could ask God one question, and you knew it would be answered, what would you ask? If you could ask God one question, and you knew it would be answered, what would you ask? What an incredible conversation starter. Something you could take with you as you talk with people in your own lives. What was even more incredible is that many of the people answered not knowing one another, almost identically. If they could ask God one question and it would be answered, this is what they asked. A number of people said almost the same thing. In the end, will everything work out? Is there going to be a happy ending? Are we going to be all right when all is said and, and done? Is everything going to be okay? There's so much insight to be gleaned from that response. We know there's something wrong with the world. We know we were made and meant for more than our current condition. We have a longing in us that is unfulfilled. We have a real fear deep within that everything won't be all right. We're looking for hope. We're looking for meaning. We have an understandable interest in the ultimate future. And so inwardly or outwardly, in one form or another, people wonder, will everything be all right in the end? If you're not a Christian, you may be listening to this because that's exactly what you're looking to answer. Maybe you didn't even know you were asking that question, but now that the words have been put to it, that's exactly what you want to know. Is everything going to be all right in the end? And in God's goodness, you've picked a good Sunday to tune in if that is you, and the answers will become clear in a moment. And if you already are a Christian, which many of you are, we still find this question stir within us because everything is not all right yet. We heard that in Tom's prayer. Though we believe, we need help for our unbelief. Though we believe, sometimes the waiting seems interminable. Sometimes it seems unending. Though we believe, circumstances unsettle. They cause us to cry out, as God's people often have, How long, O Lord? And if that's you, it's okay. You're not the first to ask such questions, you're not the first to be afraid, and you certainly will not be the last. In fact, this morning, we're going to look to the first person in the biblical record to ask God how everything will work out in the end. And in the course of the back and forth, we will discover as follows. Questions about God's unfinished plans for us are quieted by God's assurances to us. God has dealt lovingly and powerfully with inquirers before, and we will be comforted to see how. Questions 
about God's unfinished plans for us are quieted by God's assurances to us. And there are two in the passage that we are turning to this morning, which is Genesis 15. So if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me, I would be grateful so that you can see uh, God's Word, hear it for yourself. You are thinking people, you've got a mind, you have a copy of the Bible, and it's important for you to weigh everything you hear against God's Word. So an open Bible in a church service is a good and right thing. So Genesis 15, we're going to read the whole chapter and work through another one with God's help. So needing that, let me first ask before we read. So pray with me before we continue. Lord, as with Abram, as we're about to read, you know the condition, the state of every single one of us. Whether we are here in this room, we are watching on the live stream, we are watching this at a later date, none of us is hidden from your sight. And I pray, Lord, knowing this, that then you would be gracious to take the truth of your word, helping me to expose what's here, And I pray that by the power of your Spirit that you would direct these beautiful, gracious, powerful, profound arrows of truth to pierce into the hearts of every listener. I pray, Lord, that you would open up eyes and ears and minds to understand and believe and obey your word. And we pray that not only for ourselves, Lord, we pray this morning for Pastor Caleb preaching at Richmond Hill Baptist Church as well from Genesis. We pray you would be pleased to fill his sails with the power of your spirit and that you would bless that congregation that meets there. As we think about your word being preached and taught, Lord, my mind goes to one of my own teachers, instructors. We remember this morning Dr. Stan Fowler from Heritage who suffered a stroke this week and a significant one and is in Virginia with his wife and their children. And we pray, Lord, that you would be gracious to this man who for many years has faithfully preached and taught your word. We pray for Creswick Baptist Church in Guelph this morning where Stan was serving as interim pastor and preaching from week to week that you would provide in the pulpit for them. And we pray, Lord, for healing for this brother who has served you and whom we love, and so please be gracious to uh, their family and to him uh, in these days especially. And so, Lord, uh, work through your word. We know your word is powerful, and we pray that it would not return to you void as your word promises to us. And these things we ask in Jesus' name, and all of God's people say, Amen. Genesis 15, listen to what the word of God says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not. Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continued childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This is As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pod and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Brothers and sisters, this again is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there's just from a structure standpoint, very briefly, there is agreement amongst commentators that Genesis 15 is structured as two repeating cycles. The first runs from verses 1 to 6, and the second runs from verses 7 to 21. And there's a pattern here. In verse 1, God makes a promise to Abram beginning with the phrase, I am. In verse 7, God makes a second promise to Abram, or speaks to Abram a second time, beginning with the phrase, I am. In verse 2, Abram asks God a question. In verse 8, Abram asks God a second question. In verses 4 to 5, God responds reassuringly to Abram's question. In verses 9 to 21, God responds reassuringly a second time to Abram's second question. The first exchange revolves around the promise of offspring, the second around the promise of land. And in each of these exchanges, Abram's question comes in the middle of God speaking, which highlights the question to highlight the answer. These questions are quieted by the double assurance that God gives to Abram, and the first assurance that God gives relates to God's word. Our questions about God's unfinished plans for us are quieted by God's assurances to us, the first of which comes through the assurance of his prophetic word. When we have questions in the present about how God's plans are going to unfold in the future, God's word is what puts us at rest. Our questions about God's unfinished plans are quieted by the assurance of God's word. And often, the assurance of God's word is exactly what we need during seasons of life when God seems inactive. When time drags on from our perspective and not much has changed, questions begin to arise in our minds. And once again, these may not, these may not be the questions of doubt, but questions of faith. This seems to be the situation with Abram. 
Genesis 15 begins with an indication that a period of time has passed between Abram's victory over the kings of the east and his interactions with the king of Sodom and Salem, as we covered in Genesis 14 last week. As time marches on, Abram's getting older. Sarai is getting older. They are still barren. And the gap between God's promise to Abram in Genesis 12 and the fulfillment of those promises, it's growing and growing and growing. And by now, roughly some 10 years have already passed since we began with Abram's life in Genesis 12. In this time lapse, Abram is potentially exposed to retaliation because of his military success in rescuing Lot and driving the kings of East out of the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And so maybe he's in danger. He's exposed to them coming back. And into this, the reader of hearts, the Lord God, who knows the inner workings and thoughts of us all, graciously speaks to Abram in Genesis 15, verse 1, Fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. The Lord who gave the victory into his hands over the kings of the east is also his protection. The Lord who watched as Abram declined the spoils at the urging of the king of Sodom will richly reward Abram's allegiance. But length of time and circumstances draw out questions from Abram. And again, these are questions of faith, not questions of doubt. There is a line of questioning that has the posture of skepticism. It has the, an edge of distrust, of unbelief to it. But there is also a line of questioning that has the posture of faith. They have an edge of trust to them with an interest in the how rather than the if. It's not, will you do this, God? But how will you accomplish this, God? And this is the first time that Abram speaks to God. And in response to these questions of faith, note that there's not a single hint of chastisement from God towards Abram for asking them, which seems to me to be a great source of encouragement, and I hope that you hear that the same way as well. Abram responds in verse 2, O Lord God, O sovereign Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. How is this promise that my offspring will be as numerous as the dust of the earth going to come to pass because I don't have any children? And Abram adds, Behold, you've given me no offspring. Not only is there the angst of barrenness, a tremendous burden in both the ancient and the modern world, the barrenness just doesn't compute with what God has previously told Abram. In Genesis 12, 2, we hear the Lord say to him, I will make of you a, a great nation. In thirteen sixteen, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring will also be counted. But again, time has gone on, the barrenness continues, and Abram understandably asks how this will come to pass. Into the thick of this, to quiet Abram's questions, the Lord speaks. Abram makes a significant deal of drawing this matter to the Lord's attention. Behold. Now, there's a, a word that I enjoy, a Canadian word, a colloquialism, if you will. I don't think you'll find it in the dictionary. Canadians say it all the time, and maybe you haven't noticed because you are one, but Canadians say all the time this equivalent to behold, and it's the word look it. You ever hear people say that? Look it. 
And it's the way that we draw extra attention to something. Look it. Listen here. Look it. Look. That's what Abram is doing. Behold. Look it. You haven't given me any offspring. Notice this is the first of four beholds in the text. The other three beholds draw our attention to the Lord's doings and their consequences. There's one from Abram. There's three that point us to the Lord. Verse 4, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Verse 12, behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Verse 17, behold, look it, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. We take all of these together and we see that greater attention is being brought to the Lord's response to Abram than to the attention Abram draws to his own situation. And the first of these, beholds, draws our attention to God speaking. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Here, the assurance of God's word quiets the questions about God's unfinished plans. And God says, this man, speaking about Eliezer of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And here, the Hebrew is emphatic and specific. Not this man, but, but... One from your own loins. To underscore this, the Lord gives Abram the most stunning of illustrations in verse 5. Brings him outside where it's dark. He points his eyes up and he says, start counting, Abram, if you can. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Have you ever done this? Gone outside on a cloudless night someplace away from the light pollution of a city. Several years ago, my family and I were staying on Shandos Lake, uh, north of here, and we woke our kids up after they had gone to bed one night because of how clearly we could see the Milky Way streaking across the sky, and we wanted to fill their little hearts and minds with wonder at the heavens, and more than that, the God who made the heavens. Uh, It wasn't a Kodak moment, but we tried at least, and I'm sure that you've witness something of that yourself. And that's what seems to be happening here. God just doesn't speak to Abram. God speaks to Abram as the one for whom nothing is impossible. The assurance of God's word that quiets our questions about his unfinished plans is the word of the omnipotent, all-powerful creator and sovereign of the cosmos. This majestic and mighty one stoops so low to strengthen the faith of his servant Abram, entreating him, please look up and number the stars. This is now the second time God has used this word of entreaty with Abram in Genesis. And as Abram's jaw surely hangs open as he listens to the voice of the one who made all of those stars and the trillions of others that we can now see with aid of telescope, he realizes how God, how big God is and how small he is, and he hears the Lord say to him, so shall your offspring be. Talk about a visual where on every future clear night, Abram could walk outside his tent and he could look up and be reminded of the word of the Lord that came to him. The Lord who made those, who called me, who will give me a son, and from that son will come numerous descendants, and I heard him say so myself. By the word of the Lord, 
and the demonstration of the power of God's word, Abram is reassured. And we are told in verse 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. As others have pointed out, the Hebrew word for believed here comes from the root where we get the word amen. And some people have gone even as far to suggest that Abram might actually have given that as a verbal indication of his faith in this moment, responding with a loud amen, which isn't a request, may it be so, it is assurance, let it be so, or it will be so. Abram, I quote, simply rested on God's promise. In this moment, God's word was not a theory about how things would turn out, but the voice around which his life is organized, end quote. The significance of this, which is foundational to the New Testament's teaching on the relationship between faith and righteousness, is well captured by another. Writing of Abram, von Rad says, above all, his righteousness is not the result of any accomplishments, whether of sacrifice or acts of obedience. Rather, it is stated programmatically that belief alone has brought Abraham into a right relationship to God. This is why Genesis 15.6 is quoted in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. We heard Romans already, now hear Galatians. Now then, that is, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The blessing of such faith is the ultimate quieting of our questions because the blessing of faith in Jesus Christ is the assurance that, yes, everything will be all right in the end. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified. We are no longer counted guilty of sin. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous. God doesn't count our sins against us because they were counted against Christ through his death on the cross. And conversely, the righteousness of Christ's perfect life is counted to our account by faith. By resting in the promises of the gospel, we are recipients of grace, saving faith, being given to us as a gift of God. And in all of this, we are brought into a relationship with God the same way Abram was. And his word quiets our questions just as it quieted Abram's. For in being reconciled to God in the end, we have confidence that yes, everything is going to be all right, in fact, better than all right. And more than this, on the other side of the cross, we can look back to Genesis 15 and see that God's prophetic word proves True, because his descendants have become as numerous as the stars in the sky. What Abram saw visualized in the night has come to pass for every man, every woman, and every child who believes in Jesus is a son or daughter of Abraham. I am looking at some of the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to this man in the desert. And so quieted by the assurance of the gospel first preached to this tent dweller in which Abram rested, we also rest as well. And God's word, which comes to us most fully in these last days in his son, quiets 
our questions. Yet even though they do, there are times when unsettling questions still continue to raise their heads as they did for this first man of faith, Abram. The concern over descendants settled, but not the concern over land. He cannot be a great nation without people, and he cannot be a great nation without a place. And the question of how this will be comes through in the second exchange from verses 7 to 21. And here we find a second assurance God gives to quiet our questions about his unfinished plans. God gives, firstly, the assurance of his prophetic word. And God gives, secondly, the assurance of his covenant oath to quiet our questions about his unfinished plans. This covenant oath, this covenant promise, is the covenant oath of a gracious God, of a holy God, of an eternal God, and of a faithful God. Each of these being traced out in the text. Let's begin to see those by looking at verse 7. Therefore, a second time, God speaks to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. This is grace. God called Abram to be the patriarch of his covenant people, and he chose him from all the people of the earth for no other reason than he chose to. There's nothing inherent in Abram. He was part of a moon-worshipping, pagan, idolatrous people, and God called him. It's grace. This grace is observed again later, almost identically, in Exodus 20, verse 2, where we hear almost the exact same phrase, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why did God choose Israel to be his holy nation? Because he chose to. It's not because they were great, not because they were mighty, not because they were strong, not because they were inherently lovely. No, in loving them, God made them so. It's grace. And the same theme of sovereign grace of God bestowing mercy on whomever he pleases is observed in the New Covenant, in the New Testament as well. In Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why? Because he chose to. God covenanted with Abram because he is gracious. God covenanted with Israel at Sinai because he is gracious. God covenanted with us through the blood of his son because he is gracious. Let us never forget this to be so. Like Abram, with no prior knowledge, no prior faith, no prior spiritual merit, God called us sinners and idolaters because of his great love and mercy. And Abram is reminded of this in verse 7, And as God mentions the previously promised land, this generates his second question. O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Is it going to be all right in the end? And once again, God assures Abram to quiet questions about his unfinished plans. But we have to ask ourselves, what kind of answer is it that God gives in verse 9? If it didn't strike you as strange when we read it, let me just say, this should strike you as strange. Here's God's answer. Bring me some animals. Three, two birds. We count them as one. A heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Okay, that's a little unusual, but it gets even stranger. Because what is Abram to do with them? He is to kill them. And then he is to cut them in two. And then to set them out so that the pieces are opposite one another at some distance apart. 
with the two birds at the end, not cut in two, maybe because they were too small. And then as Abram's waiting, the birds of prey come down and he chases them away. What in the earth is going on here? How is this an answer to Abram's question? Well, here's a partial explanation, as the full explanation doesn't come until verse 17. The animals that God instructs Abram to take are later in Scripture, sacrificial animals, all of them. Elsewhere in Scripture, there are occasions where sacrificial animals are representative of the people of Israel. And there's good reason to believe that that's what's going on here. God speaks about four generations. There's four sets of animals or four animals, four sets of parts. And that seems to correspond to the four generations God indicates will be slaves in Egypt. The covenant that God will literally cut with Abram, and if you're, you've got your Genesis journal, you should mark that. It's literally cut a covenant, and the importance of this won't come out until we get to chapter 17. But note that. The covenant that God will literally cut with Abram involves passing through the halves of the cut animals and the two birds, indicating that the promise that's being made isn't just being made to Abram, but to Abram's descendants. It's being made to the whole of the covenant nation. And to add to our understanding of the animals this way, Bruce Walkie points out that the birds of prey coming down on the carcasses represent either Pharaoh or the Egyptians who will threaten the emergence of this nation. In Isaiah 46.11, he indicates a bird of prey is used as a metaphor for a conqueror. And so as Abram, as he's as this bloody mass is laid out before him, and the, the, bird, the carrion birds are wanting to come and feast on it, Abram's chasing them away is his defending the promised inheritance against foreign attackers. That's part of what's going on here. There's much more of significance, because what we do observe doesn't follow the normal pattern of a Near Eastern covenant ritual, and there is an incredible reason why, but I'm not going to tell you until we get to verse 17. Before then, we have to come to terms with the reality that the one who makes the covenant oath to quiet our questions about our unfin- his unfinished plans is not only a gracious God, he is also a holy God. Verse 12 tells us, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, pay attention, a dreadful and great darkness falls upon him. This is the second time a deep sleep has fallen upon someone in the book of Genesis. The first was Adam, when God took from his side to create Eve, which was followed up by the initiation of the covenant of marriage. Here, a deep sleep falls on Abram, followed by a revelation of the future and the making of a different kind of covenant. And such a sleep places Abram in the company of prophets. As someone has put it, the best-known instances of revelation happen through sleep. And so Abram, who emerges in Genesis 14 as a king among kings, who prepares animals, which would later be the kind used in sacrifices, is like a priest, and he also receives divine revelation from God. From Adam to the new Adam, Noah, and now to Abram, kingly, priestly, and prophetic, and from Adam, Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. But sleep is not all that falls on Abram. The darkness does too. It's dreadful, it's terrifying, it's fearful. 
Psalm 18 speaks of the Lord shrouding himself in darkness in thick rain clouds. In Deuteronomy 5.22, we read of how the Lord spoke to the assembly of Israelites at the mountain from the middle of the fire, the cloud, and the darkness with a loud voice. In response, the people said, if we keep hearing the voice of the Lord our God, we will die. Abram is experiencing here what the Israelites later did at the mountain, a close encounter with the only holy God. And as the presence of the Lord descends around him, the fear of the Lord settles on him, and it is a tremendous weight. I'm sure you've heard the expression starstruck before, which is what happens when someone encounters someone who is famous or a celebrity or someone they admire. And this sometimes even happens to celebrities who meet other celebrities and people cry and they laugh and they shake and they shout and they scream all because they are in close proximity to someone who is famous or powerful or significant to them. And that's just for another human being. What about the perfectly holy creator of the ends of the earth? You trace it out every time in Scripture. People end up in close proximity to this holy, holy, holy Lord. They are God-struck. And so they should be. And so should we be. This God who quiets our questions about his unfinished plans, assuring us by his covenant oath, is holy. And we would do well to cultivate more God-struckness in our life as we realize who he is. Isaiah was undone. Others thought they were going to die. Peter said to the Lord Jesus, get away from me, for I am a sinful man. The weight of the holiness and the glory of God settles intensely upon Abram in this moment. Along with this, we also realize the God who makes this covenant oath to quiet our questions is also eternal. As the word of the Lord sounds forth again in verse 13, we hear the Lord speak of the future, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, the text goes on, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What we've just read about there is the Exodus. And that it happened as the Lord spoke to Abram, and as Abram no doubt passed on, demonstrates both Abram's credentials as a prophet, but more importantly, it demonstrates that the Lord who speaks here knows the end from the beginning. If any of this is proved wrong, Abram's a fraud, and God's word is not trustworthy. But the record shows that what was prophesied came to pass, which is not too difficult for the eternal God who is Lord over history to know. Our questions about God's unfinished plans are quieted by this knowledge because we realize that God works on an entirely different timeline than we do. What God promised to Abram won't even come to pass in his lifetime. 
Abram will know a full life. He'll go down happy and in peace with gray hair to the grave and be buried. He won't see the fulfillment of these promises. And many of his descendants won't either. They'll experience subjection and slavery. They'll be strangers in a strange land. And they will cry out to the Lord. And the Lord will remember, and that's why he responds at the beginning of Exodus. But they will be treated horrendously. Yet on the other side of this, God will judge when the measure of sin reaches a pinnacle that exhausts God's patient kindness and warrants justice. God will rescue. God will bless. But what God is saying to Abram here is that the seed God planted with Abram won't sprout from the ground until Abram is in it, as someone has put it. Sometimes that's how God works. We serve in faith that our labor is not in vain, even if we never see it brought to fruition, because we trust that God always has been working and always will be working to bring about His glorious ends, ends He has known about from the very beginning. And when we understand this, brothers and sisters, our questions about God's unfinished plans are quieted, because we are assured by God's prophetic word and God's covenant oath, spoken and made by a God who is powerful, gracious, holy, eternal, and finally, faithful. This faithfulness we will see in the explanation of that strange ceremony that God instructs Abram to conduct. Look at verse 17 now. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, there again, look it, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. This is indicating to us the presence of God with smoke and with fire. And the original readers of Genesis would have known all about this because the pillar of cloud is what moved from before the fleeing Israelites to protect them at their rear when the pursuing Egyptians were harassing them out in the fourth generation. We read in Exodus 14.20, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. When they came to Mount Sinai, on the third day it was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And then from Sinai through the wilderness wanderings, how did the Lord lead His covenant people? A cloud by day and fire by night. And this same glorious spectacle in miniature is what Abram seems to see when God promised the land, confirming it by an unchangeable covenant. And normally, in this time and in this place, when two parties were making a covenant and agreement, the animals would be slain, and both parties of the animals would walk between the halves together. And that indicated that if they broke the covenant, what happened to those animals is what would happen to them. There's an 8th century text, BC text, that reads as follows. This head is not the head of a lamb, it is the head of Matalu, which is a name. If Matalu sins against this treaty, so may, just as the head of this spring lamb is torn off, the head of Matalu be torn off and his sons. That's just how they did it. That was their contract, if you will. So in other words, this is a solemn oath, breakable on pain of death. Now look again at what takes place here before Abram. When the sun had gone down, 
And it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot, a flaming torch, and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made, again, literally cut, a covenant with Abram to secure the land, which comes with geographic and ethnic boundary markers. You notice who does not pass between the animals? Abram. This covenant agreement, this assurance that God will deliver on his promise of land for innumerable offspring, it is unilateral. God will keep his end of the covenant, and God will keep Abram's end of the covenant as well. In all my reading about this, I've come across nothing better than the following, and I simply just want to read it to you. I've read it many times. It has brought me to tears on occasion. I can't improve upon it, so simply just listen, and from this we will transition to singing again and then to the Lord's Supper. It's longer than I normally would quote, but I think you'll understand why. What an awesome God we have. What incredible love He has for His creatures. Imagine, the creator of the universe, the holy and righteous God was willing to leave heaven and come down to a nomad's tent in the dusty hot desert of Negev to express His love for His people. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, along with a dove and a young pigeon, God told Abraham. Then, when those animals had been sacrificed and laid out on both sides of their shed blood, God made a covenant. To do that, he walked barefoot in the form of a blazing torch through the path of blood between the animals. Think of it. Almighty God, walking barefoot through a pool of blood. The thought of a human being doing that is, to say the least, unpleasant. Yet God, in all his power and majesty, expressed his love that personally. By participating in the traditional Near Eastern covenant-making ceremony, he made it unavoidably clear to the people of that time, place, and culture what he intended to do. I love you so much, Abraham, God was saying. And I promise that this covenant will come true for you and your children. I will never break my covenant with you. I'm willing to put my own life on the line to make you understand. Picturing God passing through that gory path between the carcasses of animals, imagining the blood splashing as he walked, helps us recognize the faithfulness of God's commitment. He was willing to express in terms his chosen people could understand that he would never fail to do what he promised. He ultimately fulfilled his promise by giving his own life, his own blood on the cross. Because we look at God's dealings with Abraham as some remote piece of history in a far-off land, we often fail to realize that we are, too, part of the long line of people with whom God made a covenant on that rocky plain near Hebron. And like those who came before us, we have broken that covenant. When he walked in the dust of the desert through the blood of the animals Abraham had slaughtered, God was making a promise to all the descendants of Abraham, to everyone in the household of faith. When God splashed through the blood, he did it for us. We're not simply individuals in relationship to God. We're part of a long line of our people marching back through history from our famous Jewish ancestors, David, Hezekiah, and Peter, to the millions of unknown believers from the ancient Israelites and the Jewish people of Jesus' day to the Christian community dating from the early church. We are part of a community of people with whom God established relationship in the dust and sand of the Negev. But there's more. 
When God made covenant with his people, he did something no human being would have even considered doing. In the usual blood covenant, each party was responsible for keeping only his side of the promise. When God made covenant with Abraham, however, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. If this covenant is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or yours, I will pay the price. If you or your descendants for whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And the writer says, at that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son, Jesus. And we are about to remember at the Lord's table that God followed through, did he not? God keeps his word. God keeps his covenant forever. Will everything be all right in the end? Absolutely, because of this. And because of this, our questions, our doubts, our fears can be quieted. Because God promised to Abram and his descendants and showed it in the cross that he would pay the price so that we could dwell with him and he would be our God and we would be his people and so it would be forever and ever and ever. If you are not yet a Christian, the answers you are looking for are found through faith in Jesus Christ. Will you trust him? Will you come to him to find rest for your souls? And if you are a Christian with the imperfect faith of Abram, then come and eat and drink that your faith may be nourished so that you would proclaim Christ's death until he comes and in doing so, respond to this promise, surely I am coming soon with a loud, Amen, come Lord Jesus.